title for today's talk is Time Out of Time. In other words, it's an invitation for you, for all of us, to take time out of the tyranny of time. Not easy, you know. Not easy. Throughout our life, at every turn, we seem to confirm, corroborate the, the fact that we are hemmed in by the tyranny of time. The time is in control of our lives, of the whole show of life, in fact. Over and over again, we tell ourselves, where has the morning gone? Where has the afternoon gone? Where has the day, the week, whatever, gone? Where has the weekend gone? <laughs> right here. It's true that we might forget for a while about time. But as soon as the notion pops up in our mind again, it, it becomes bad news. It becomes a botheration. Why? But, you know, if we had a sense that time is out there and it's just like uh, turning on a tap and like water, it starts running. At least in places like this, because water is very scarce in other places. Um, then, then, I guess we'd have no excuse for that. But, there is a problem, because we convince ourselves that time is scarce. It's in its scarcity that it acquires power over us. It's as if we have to constantly be running in order to keep up with it. As if we were on a treadmill. The treadmill is going fast and boy, we have to really exert ourselves to just be there. We believe, as the proverb says, that time is money. And money, of course, is the epitome of scarcity. With money, too, we seem to be constantly having to chase after it in order to just, uh, as the expression goes, make ends meet. And yet, not that money is really scarce, you know. I mean, every time I get home and look at the Dana box, you know, it's brimming with money. <laughs> I remember the first time I received Dana, it was uh, very beautiful. I was training to teach. Uh, Christopher went to Germany. 
and uh, I never expected to get anything for it. And, and Christopher comes towards me with a handful of bills, you know, like that. It was the, the way he was holding his bills, you know. Supposedly, under the scarcity of money, we're supposed to put this money in these nice envelopes, white envelopes, you know, pass it on. And there he was handling it like that and gave it to me. But it felt so plentiful. You know, those, those uh, who study, like, uh, we have an economist here, who knows very well about it. I, I studied just a little about money, but uh, uh, it's clear that in, in, in societies like ours, you know, in a market-based society, the scarcity of money, yes, it's felt, but it's a commonly agreed scarcity. We decide to make it scarce, and it ends up being scarce. And so, same with time, you know. And same with love, of course. I was talking about that yesterday. I devoted half a talk to that. We, we see ourselves as lonely on the implicit belief that love is scarce. At least for us. We are unlovable, unlovable. Ridiculous. Except that it does become, with love, an excuse to settle for the isolation of the heart. So, in generally, with all this created scarcities, really, assumptions of scarcity whether with time, love, money, or or whatever. These scarcities become an excuse for not opening up to life. Or in the language of my talk yesterday, not opening up to the net of Indra. Let me revisit that allegory of the net of Indra uh, to remind those of you who are here and uh, uh, for the benefit of anybody who wasn't here yesterday. This is an allegory that is uh, uh, developed very extensively in a long scripture called in translation, the flower ornament scripture uh, from the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. According to this legend, there is this huge, infinite, in fact, net hanging in the palace of the god Indra. At each place where the strands of the net intersect, a jewel has been set. A jewel that's translucent and reflective. And the arrangement, there's a key here, the arrangement of the net is such that each jewel reflects 
all the other jewels around. And so, infinitely. So, each individual... Ah, okay. So, this arrangement, for instance, as I was describing it yesterday, as a metaphor for humanity, means that each one of us reflect all the other humans, while contributing our own uniqueness to the net. So, each individual, each jewel, besides himself, herself, itself, becomes a reflection of the universal as well. And it's himself, herself, itself, because of that reflection he receives, he, she receives. Now, this metaphor, which I developed largely around as humans, which of course, but still extends to all other beings, all other things. In fact, all the realities there are, including time. So I'm going to talk about the Indra's net now in the dimension of time. Thanks to it, it, each moment of time contains and reflects all others, as do all jewels in the net. In this continuum of time, this wholeness of time, if you wish, there is, of course, a continuum of causality as well, of cause and effect. Each link implies and contains the next link and contains the previous link. There is no, therefore, no frozen past no idealized future the way we usually deal with past and future. But in the net, past and future are fully alive in the present, enriched by it. You know, in the practice we have all this talk about being present now, being here now. Fair enough. But the now doesn't mean cutting off the past and and blocking out the future. The now is interpenetrating by all times. Nothing can be considered in isolation. 
talk when we talk about the present is really a way of talking about timelessness. Now, I realize that this may sound a bit uh, theoretical, abstruse, uh, abstract, uh, whatever. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, adopting a little bit the, the language, uh, rich and solid language of Mahayana Buddhism. So, let me try to make it a little more accessible by using language that relates more closer to our direct experience. Let's consider memories, for instance. In a habitual way of, of, of making an archive of things, you know. Um, the memories, recollections, are simply seen as documents entered in the computer of the mind or in the archive of the mind and, and kept there as frozen, lifeless narratives. But when we stop dividing time into categories, when we enter into the timeless now, then each remembrance is something that can be vividly re-experienced. For the categories of time do not enter. I try to illustrate that the best I can. One example that comes to mind here is a um, an old movie by Orson Welles called Citizen Kane. It was made in 1941. Occasionally reappeared. And it's about the life of uh, this uh, famous, powerful man who owned newspapers called William Randolph Hearst. So it describes his life and as Citizen Kane, which is a name for William Randolph Hearst uh, in the movie, a Citizen Kane is dying. He mumbles repeatedly a very strange word that nobody in his time could understand. The word is rosebud. As the movie reveals in some way, and I don't know whether it's historical or not, Rosebud. I have deep emotion in saying, I don't know why. Rosebud was the name of his childhood sled. There was this powerful man. And all his life, this child on the sled was alive. That was the most significant thing he could say as he was dying. That's what I mean by the past being now. 
just just to give another example, I'm sure there are very many. Just something that came to me three days ago, actually. I was watching, as I always do, and I can never restrain myself from doing a little commercial here. I was watching Amy Goodman's Democracy Now! and uh, Satellite. Whatever satellite system you have, you can find it. If you don't know where to find it, go to the web, democracynow.org, if you're interested. Anyway, I was watching a program, and she was interviewing a woman from Argentina, actually, a name being Patricia, Patricia, the age of our daughters, in fact, our daughters have met her too. Patricia had been a, a put in jail at age 16, tortured, raped, and then disappeared for two years, and very, very unusually. They didn't kill her. She reappeared somehow. And she was telling her story in all details. And there was a, a movie about that that was being shown too, of her revisiting the places where she was tortured. And she said that uh, on Friday, that is, uh, this this last Friday while we were sitting here, she was going to be in Fort Bennington, Georgia, where there is an institution of the U.S. Army called the School of the Americas, which has been the training place for torturers, torturers throughout America, North and South, that is. Until recently, this is something that was only done in the South. And um, somehow that brought alive uh, a bit of my past that was uh, archived somewhere, dead in, in my dead archive somewhere. Sally came so pungently alive. When I was 18, I mean, my story is much, much milder than Patricia's. I was two years older. I was put in jail. I was only kept there for about a week or ten days, I can't remember. I wasn't tortured, but everybody else around me was tortured. The reasons why I wasn't tortured, um, technical, really, no, not important. I could have been tortured, that's an important thing here in the memory. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about the actual experience that happened to me. What happened to me is that I felt my past totally alive the moment that she started talking. And when she said that she was going to Fort Benning, Georgia, um, uh, 
for a demonstration that occurs once a year, it occurs to me, I will go next year, if I'm in, in good health to do that. It's arduous, of course, to go and demonstrate and these things, but uh, I felt certainly that my past had come alive. So, that's the point I was really trying to make. The past is not just dead past. The past reflects itself in, through Indra's net and uh, this program in, with Patricia, Patricia um, illuminated my own jewel of time. I mean, one, one can have all kinds of different examples. Let me just uh, do one more, just to point out what libraries are like. Libraries, too, would seem to be records of the past. Surely, many of the books in the library are historical books. Others are fiction that happened in a certain period all seems to be past. And yet, think of it. A book is absolutely nothing without a reader. And the readers of those books in those libraries are us today in the present. The moment we touch the jewel of that time in the past, our jewel lights up or at least is touched. Just as the issue of time is so pervasive in our lives, it's also pervasive in our practice, of course, which is naturally... uh, an encapsulation of life. In the sittings, we do shift back and forth, do we not? From being prisoners of time to being free of its tyranny. In this seesawing of about time, being with and being outside of it. In this seesawing, clearly the insubstantiality of time gets revealed. I mean, if time was solid and substantial, we'd be always caught into it. The fact that there are time, there are moments, whatever, periods, when we are not caught in time, when we are out of time. And the practice favors that. That shows that it's insubstantial. In fact, going back to my the metaphor of the treadmill, 
You know, we're in this treadmill of time. Working hard just to catch up with things. Working hard and hard. And suddenly, we have this insight. What's, what's moving that uh, belt under our feet? And you know what? It's us who's moving. <laughs> we thought there was this engine moving, and it was us running. And we realize that to a large extent, to a large extent, this is of course a, a rather extreme metaphor, to a large extent, we slow down and the treadmill slows down. That's certainly dramatic in retreats. We come to retreats and when we are in the grip of time, there's nothing that seems more sweet than the possibility of... (laughs) (laughs) And then, somehow we shift. And we are sitting, and we forgot about time. Um, in in self retreats, this is even more remarkable. You know, the, the time, because there's no, no nobody there that that we are expecting will ring a bell. Nobody rings a bell, and time is just. What do we make move? We decide not to move time. Stops. In a time that is. You know, the clocks clocks keep moving, but that's a convention. Clock time is a convention. Yeah, there is a gong calling us for lunch. Okay, so we go eat. But but it, it, it doesn't have a grip on us. We're hungry. We may, but otherwise. Just just an opportunity to eat, that's all. When the power of time melts away, then we can't fool ourselves any longer about time, really. I mean, there's still a part of us that continues to pester us with, uh, yeah, but you know, you have to do this and that, and so and so is coming tonight for dinner, and dinner is not ready, whatever, you know. But the, the real power of time melts away. There is not longer a separation between past, present, future. What we call the present, the now, is simply an entry into reality, containing all times in its web of interactions. Sure, we still have to keep an appointment's calendar, we still have to keep dinner ready for our guests, uh, more or less at the time we said we would. We 
we may have to look at our iPod or all these various strange devices that people who are in the busy world utilize. Sure, I mean, this is all appropriate. But the point is we don't have to internalize the darn thing. It's just a convention. It's not internalized. Internally, the rule of time has dissolved away. In its place, openness and kindness. And the net of intra, yes. Somebody recently emailed me a poem that I think has something to do with this and just uh, read a few verses from it. Get the name of the author. The name is uh, Naomi Shahibna, and the poem is called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. So, we do let time dissolve like salt in a weakened broth. The broth itself, another metaphor for endless net. And then there are these landscapes of desolation as the poet says. To, to recognize that the moment we let the, the time frame dissolve, this supporting scaffolding dissolve, we gain some freedom, But also we lose uh, some of that sense of security. So before we can put time aside, before we can let it dissolve, before we can take time out of time, as the title of the talk says, we need to be willing to open up to insecurity. True that the sense of security that time brings is illusory, is like time itself, it's an illusion. But still, 
Are we ready to give this illusion up? Are we ready to plunge into insecurity? Or to refer to the metaphor that I referred here, I think, yesterday, uh, to jump from the airplane without a parachute, hoping, as the case turns out to be, fortunately, there's no ground to smash ourselves against. Pema Chodron has some words of wisdom here, and I'm going to defer to her for a moment. This is from her, I think her more recent book, Practicing Peace in Times of War. She says, in order, in order to change our habits, we have to develop an appetite for what I like to call positive groundlessness or positive insecurity. Normally, of course, we want to get away from that uncomfortable feeling. It just seems reasonable to want to do so. And it would be reasonable, except for the fact that you may have nothing noticed that it doesn't really work. We've been trying the same ways of getting comfortable for as long as we can remember. And yet our aggression, our anxiety, our resentfulness doesn't seem to be getting any less. So I'm saying, we need to develop an appetite for groundlessness. We need to get curious about it and be willing to pause and hang out for a while in that space of insecurity. Just one more metaphor, if you can bear with me. I'm very fond of the metaphor of going to the seashore, into the water, to meet the breaking waves. The, the only way, the proper way, to deal with them is to dive right into the center of the breaker, of the breaking wave. And in doing so, we come magically into the heart of the wave, where everything is incredibly, totally calm and at peace. And so with insecurities of any kind, of all kinds, including the insecurity of that results from dropping the framework of time. So, 
when we drop out of that internalized scaffolding of time, when we are ready to take time out of time, and we may be expecting that chaos will descend upon us, then try instead to go into the peaceful heart of the way. Into a vastness for which some use the language of God and for which I have chosen here to use the language of Indra's net where there is room for all there is. Exit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.